think we're in Genesis. Um, if you're visiting here this evening, well, then this is what we do. We just work on and, and take the next passage. And so tonight we are in Genesis 38. I'm going to read, and then those who are heading out to 7 o'clock club uh, can head out at that point. You'll know that normally we have um, catechism. Last week, I, I promised you we'd have it this week, and I'm going to have to renege on that promise. I forgot that we were uh, having baptisms. And next week, with the admittance of um, people in the membership, we're probably not going to have it then either. So um, just keep coming. Just that uh, you never know uh, when it's going to appear. Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went in to her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Herah, the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Iniam, which is in the road to Timnah. For she saw, for she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So she gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enium on the roadside? And they said, no cult, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, 
let her keep the things as her own, as we shall be laughed at. You see, I, I sent this young goat, and he did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. She was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks for it. Okay, here's, here's what I think we're going to see this evening as we take some time in, in Genesis 38. We're going to see a whole lot of sin, a whole lot of sin, but we're also going to see the justice, the promises, and the grace of God. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we know that this is your word, and so would you help us with it? Help us to hear, help us to see, help us to know in our hearts what it is that you are saying to us through your word this evening. And so, Lord, might we be able to say, as we leave, that our hearts were burning within us as we hear Christ speak through his word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you were listening to, to Genesis 38, and I really do hope you were listening to Genesis 38, you'll probably have realized that this is, a, this is a story that maybe you didn't cover in Sunday school. It seems to get often covered in the Sunday school plans. Uh, maybe in some houses, this is the sort of chapter that, in the Bible, perhaps Pritstick conveniently landed to keep the two pages together. Maybe you've been at a baptism before, and, well, this wasn't the passage that he preached after. <laughs> uh, and maybe you're thinking, I'm not really sure what to do with Genesis 38. But what do we believe? Well, Alistair's already said, we believe that Scripture is God's Word, that it is all breathed out by him, him and that it is useful. And so the question is, what does a messy story like this one really have to say to God's people today? Well, we said it. We said it's a, a story of sinful hearts, a whole lot of sin, but also the justice, the promises, and the grace of God. And I think that is a story we need to hear so let's work our way through the story, and, and as we go, we're just going to make some application. Firstly, I want you to see Judah is a man continuing in the wrong direction. Do you spot that? He is a man continuing in the wrong direction. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adilamite, whose name was Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her 
and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shezib when she bore him. Now, these initial verses, they really help us. They help us with some key context uh, for what takes place in, in the rest of the chapter. And the first thing I want you to notice is that this is another chapter in Genesis that is focused on offspring. Did you pick that up? This is another chapter in Genesis that focuses on offspring. Remember, that's one of the big themes that flows uh, right throughout the book of Genesis and holds it all together. Right back in Genesis 3, God had made a promise that the seed of the woman would one day crush Satan's head. And then God had made a promise to Abraham that it would be through his seed, through his offspring, that the whole world would indeed be blessed. And so what we've been doing is we've been working our way through from Genesis 12 as we've kind of been tracing along the line of the seed. And here's another passage that tells us offspring is really important. Follow the line. Trace the seed. And secondly, these verses help flesh out the character of the man that is Judah. Judah was the one who had taken the lead in saying to his brothers that they should sell their brother Joseph. Do you remember that a few weeks ago? See that in Genesis 37. And what was his reason? What was his reason behind wanting to sell his brother? Was it out of love for his brother? Was it that his conscience was, was pricking and prodding him and he was thinking we really shouldn't kill our brother? Was it anything like that? Well, as far as we know, no, the only thing that was motivating him was money. And he thought to himself, why kill our brother whenever we can sell him and we can benefit financially from it? And so that's exactly what they did, isn't it? They sell their brother and then they deceive their father by covering Joseph's robe in goat's blood and sending it back to their father to identify, saying, Father, I identify this. Is this your son's? And the father, Jacob, presuming his son to be dead, that Joseph is now dead, he is in despair, isn't he? And so he mourns and he refuses to be comforted. So if that's what's just happened, how does Judah respond? What of this man, Judah? He's just been complicit in this, this horrific act. And his dad is now mourning. His dad is in bits so what does he do? Well, he continues on down the road, the road to self-gratification, the road of following his own heart's desire, the road of pleasing self. Judah is a very selfish man, isn't he? And he leaves the rest of his brothers to it. He doesn't seem to have much care for them at this point. He becomes friendly with someone from the royal Canaanite city of Adullam called Hirah. And while he's hanging out with this man, he saw and he took and he went into a girl called Shua. And that language of saw and took, I wonder, can you think, where have we seen that before in Genesis? Well, we've seen it quite a few times, but it goes right back to what happens in the garden with Eve, doesn't it? Saw, took. And the girl that he takes, well, she is a Canaanite woman. Now, you might remember, we focused on this again quite a few times, picking up on it, that the, his ancestors have been so very careful not to marry Canaanite women. So very careful. Well, at least most of them have been very careful. You might remember um, Esau. Esau married some Canaanite woman, even though it displeased his parents, making life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And I'm presuming that Judah's dad would not want his son marrying some Canaanite girl who had no interest in the God of Abraham and Isaac. 
But as we've already seen, it doesn't look like Judah really cares too much about pleasing his father. That doesn't seem to be his top motive. Nor does looking for God's choice of a partner, of a girl, that doesn't seem to feature either. You see, even with what little we know of Judah up until this point, it reveals a man who is led by his lusts, isn't it? Sexual lust here, financial lust when he sells his little brother, lust for power and for position, and that's why he and his brothers were so angry and jealous over Joseph in the first place, wasn't it? And so Judah, here he saw, he took, and then he goes in and lies with her. And it's, it's quite matter-of-fact, isn't it? Judah does not seem to be a romantic. And she bears him three sons. Judah seems to be about for the birth of the first because he, he names his first son. But notice that the second and third, it's his wife who names them. And the writer actually takes time to note that Judah is not at home when the third child is born. Judah is away. He's not there. He was in Shazib at another time. You have to wonder, why does the writer include these kind of details? Why does he tell us this? It seems that the writer of Genesis is trying to tell us that this is a father who was not about home. He was not about for the raising of his children. And if that's the case, as we read on and we see the character of the first two sons at least, well, it certainly doesn't seem to have a positive impact, does it? No, it's, it's Father's Day, isn't it? Father's Day. And I wonder if the writer of Genesis is highlighting the need for fathers to be active, not absent. Active, not absent. Involved in the bringing up of their children. Now, I know that there's, there's lots of different individual circumstances in the room, some of which might make this almost impossible unless God works in a particular way. But as a general principle, as a general principle, here is a message to the dads. Make sure that you do not abandon the bringing up of your children to your wife. Dads are supposed to be active parents. That's why when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says to fathers not to provoke their children to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and the instructions of the Lord. There's a reason as to why this is a message to fathers. Fathers are to take an active role, an active role in discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. And so my question to those who are fathers here this evening is this, is this one of your key priorities? Is it a key priority? Because I think it should be. Certainly the Bible sets it out as a key priority for fathers. And if it's if it's really a key priority, what does it look like in your diary? Does it look like discipling your children is a, is a key role? Or is it squeezed out by golf and work and all sorts of other things? Good things. Well, so far, what we've seen about the man Judah is not exactly positive, is it? Verse 6, and Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Two things we see here. Er is the first. Do you spot that? Notice how the writer really stresses that by noting it twice within one verse. Judah has a firstborn whose name is Er. And the firstborn is really, really important because with being the firstborn, you, you normally bore the leadership 
responsibility within a family, and you received more inheritance. And it's especially important because the promises that were made by God earlier in the book of Genesis to Abraham were to him and his descendants. And so we are watching out for this line of seed as we trace it. But notice secondly, and this is really obvious, you can't really miss this. Er is a wicked man, isn't he? Er is wicked in the sight of the Lord. We must know that the eyes of the Lord are watching over all of us. All of us, God's eyes are watching. He watches over the evil and the good. And God makes a judgment, a righteous judgment. And the wickedness of this man is so great that God chooses to bring an end to his life there and then. This is the first time in the book of Genesis that an individual is singled out and put to death as a result of their sin. Obviously, we've no one, we can, we can think of, of, of their wickedness and how he wipes out all of the people then, but this is an individual who's listed for being especially wicked. This man must have been really wicked. Er is a wicked son, and God steps in and takes him out of the picture. And so the firstborn son has been removed, and, and notice, he has no children. He's married to Tamar, but there is no heir. And so here is another woman in the Genesis story who struggles to conceive, and now her husband is dead. So what happens now? Well, as with the custom of the day, to keep the memory and line of the deceased and to provide care for the widow, the brother of the deceased was to marry the deceased's widow. Legally, the the children would be seen as the deceased's, even though biologically they were actually the son of the brother. But in terms of inheritance, the son born would take on the leadership responsibility within the family and receive the extra inheritance. Well, now we meet this man, Onan, don't we? And he knew very well his duty. He was to take his dead brother's wife as his own. But actually, as you look at the text, we don't even see that he does that. There's no mention of marriage. Doesn't seem to be there. He just seems to go in to have sex with her. But because he knew that the offspring wouldn't legally be his, we're told that he would go into his brother's wife, but that he, that he would waste his semen on the ground so that he would not give her offspring, so that she would have no offspring of his brother. It seems he was happy to use Tamar for his own physical pleasure, but he withheld the chance of having children. And it wasn't just a, a one-off event. No, this was a regular practice that he had. Time and time again, he would do this each time. He knew what he was doing. It was a deliberate act. And Tamar, well, she's bound to know that was happening as well. But to those who were around, who watched on, perhaps they, they thought at least it gives an air of, of fulfilling his duty. Oh, there he is. He hasn't quite married her, but, you know, at least he's fulfilling his duty every time they see him leaving his brother's wife. But rather than fulfilling his duty, he was abusing this woman who was made in the image of God, and that is a very serious, serious thing to do. Here was a man who refused to fulfill his duty. Here was a man who would take God's call to within marriage of one man and one woman to fill the earth and subdue it, and he would seek to set himself against that very mandate. And as God looks on, Again, he passes judgment. What Onan did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. 
And so God in his righteous judgment brings about the end to this young man's life as well. And so Judah finds himself with two out of three sons dead. And don't forget the reason that is given for their death. It was in direct response to their wickedness. And so you have to feel for Tamar, don't you? Here's these two men that she's been with, and they are both renowned for their wickedness. Now we know the custom. What happens? The brother dies. He leaves a widow, and there is no heir. What should happen? Well, the third son should step in and do his duty. So that's what we expect, isn't it? But as Judah watches on, it seems that he doesn't realize that his son's uh, death are a result of their own wickedness. As he watches on, it seems that he misses that, perhaps due to the, the kind of man that we've already seen Judah to be. He doesn't even realize their wickedness. Maybe their actions aren't so far away from his own, and so he, you know, he's blinded to the sin that they're involved in. And so he thinks the problem might be this. He thinks the problem could actually be Tamar. And so he, he really doesn't want to give his third son to this lady. And so he says to Tamar, he says, remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up. In other words, what he says is, well, you go back home, live with your dad until the third son's a bit older. And when he's a bit older, well, then, then he'll do his duty and then he'll get married to you. But here's the thing, because Judah has no intention, no intention of ever giving, him, uh, giving her his third son in marriage. See, Judah was a man who deceived his father in the chapter before about the supposed death of Joseph, and he's happy to continue in that same path, isn't he? Here's a man who just keeps on going with the same thing, deception after deception after deception. He is not a man who keeps his word. So this evening, I wonder if you think that's acceptable, <laughs> one of God's people, just to lie casually, to not actually say what you mean? Or do you realize that it is incredibly important that you actually keep your word? See, the picture painted so far is, is one of an evil man, isn't it? A man who lies and deceives and takes. He seeks to live to please his own fleshly desires. He's a selfish man. The idea of, of duty, the idea of righteousness, the idea of justice, well, we don't get a sniff of that with this man, do we? Well, we are to be men and women of our word. We are to bear the image of Christ. We take on his name. Think about that in baptism. We take on the name of the one who cannot lie. So how should we live? Not like this. Well, Tamar, she's been watching on, hasn't she? And she too has worked out that Judah has no intention of ever giving over his third son in marriage. And so she finds herself in a desperate, desperate situation. And yet it seems that she is determined to see the seed of Abraham continue through Judah's line. In time, Judah's wife dies. We're told that he's comforted. And then he travels up with his friend, the Adulamite, to the sheep shearing. Now, this is a major calendar event, okay, in Bible times. It was a time of feasting, a time of celebration. Uh, it kind of has festival vibes, you might say, okay? But when Tamar hears that Judah's going to be going there, we're told that she changes her dress and she sets herself en route so that he would see her as he passed by. Listen to these verses, verse 13. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veal, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Elam, which is in the road to Timnah. 
For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Here is the, here is the shocking thing this evening. It seems that Tamar is so aware of the character of Judah, her father-in-law, that she knows that if he sees her sitting there at the entrance to NAM, presumably where the prostitutes might normally be found, she knows that he will sleep with her. She seems to go with a plan and be quite sure that this is a plan that's going to work. And that is quite an indictment on this man, isn't it? It's no accident that the writer of Genesis sets this part of the story side by side with Genesis 39. You can flick ahead if you're not sure of the story, but what happens is Joseph finds himself in a place of sexual temptation, and he acts with integrity. What does he do? He flees from sexual immorality. And so I want you to hear this tonight. I want you to hear that continuing down the path of of sexual immorality no matter how often you've been there before, is not inevitable. Because with the work of the Spirit, you can change. You can change. But sadly, Judah continues to walk in the the path that he's become accustomed, doesn't he? We're told that he sees the lady, not realizing that it's really his daughter-in-law and that she's wearing a veil, and he seeks to take her and to lie with her. Again, it all sounds pretty transactional, doesn't it? Again, Jacob, or uh, Judah is no romantic. He has sexual desires, and he seeks to have them met. Now, of course, we presume that if he had realized that this was his sister-in-law, that he, he wouldn't have slept with her, okay? We assume that's the case. But the point is, if she was a prostitute, as he presumed that she was, he was very happy to sleep with her. That's a shock, isn't it? As long as his desires were met, he was happy to continue down that path. Although we are in no way promoting Tamar's actions and and seeking to seduce Judah, I'm not saying this is a model that anyone should follow, it is interesting how the Bible itself talks about her. Because actually, the Bible talks about her really positively. If you look in in Ruth chapter 4, it's a positive account of her. Perhaps you wouldn't have considered uh, Tamar as a possible name for a daughter, but maybe you should, you know? Certainly King David thought that she was worthy enough to name one of his daughters after her. But I want you to see that in her actions, she is a shrewd operator, isn't she? Because when Judah does not uh, have a goat to offer her as a payment, she says, well, what are you going to give me as a pledge until this young goat arrives? And so she asks him for his signet, his cord, and his staff. Basically, she says something like this, give me your passport, your driver's license, and a few of those credit cards, and then, then we're all good. And for a man who's used to getting whatever his heart, desi- his heart desires, he just continues down the road, doesn't he? He gives her whatever she wants so that he gets whatever he wants. And now she has all she needs to be able to prove his deed. And so like a seductive scammer who seeks to reel you in online, who takes the explicit images that you share online with her, banks them, and then uses them to blackmail you at any point in the future. You see, it's not really something new, is it? We find it here in Genesis 38. But Judah doesn't stop. He's willing to risk it all, isn't he? So 18b, so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and 
went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Here's a man who is an expert deceiver, and what has happened? Well, this time he's found himself deceived, hasn't he? Tamar takes off the veil, and no longer is she perceived as a prostitute, but she's known as Tamar, the widow. And this causes a bit of a problem, doesn't it? Because Judah seeks to, to keep his pledge, after all. He's a man of his word, isn't he? <laughs> so he, he sends his friend, the Adilamite, to deliver the goat. It's interesting, isn't it? You know? He doesn't want to get found out publicly, so what does he do? He sends his friend, you know? Some things never seem to change. If you want to cover up, just send someone else to, do your, uh, to cover up your dirty tracks. I mean, you don't have to look too far in the news to see that it's still the same kind of things that happen, isn't it? You ask your lawyer to try and cover it up. You get your PR company to give a press briefing. But as he looks for this cult prostitute, well, she's nowhere to be found, is she? And so after asking around for a bit, he's starting to think this is a bit embarrassing. <laughs> How many people can you ask in the town about the prostitute before you, you start to think this? I should, I should stop this. Well, about three months later, word reaches Judah, and this is what he hears. Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. How does Judah respond? A man who hasn't been squeaky clean himself. Well, what does he say? He says, she sinned. She must pay the penalty. And maybe he was even thinking, this is going to be a pretty good way of getting my son out of marrying this girl. But then she plays her joker card, doesn't she? Verse 25. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Please identify. Where have we heard that before recently? Please identify. Isn't that the, the very phrase that comes up whenever Joseph's coat is sent back to his father? Please identify, Father. Is, is this really our brother's coat? Could something have happened to him? Could, could he have been killed, you know? And so these words, please identify, now come back to bite Judah. And yet here is the wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing because here, here is Judah, and he is, he is dramatically exposed, isn't he? And what does he do? Does he try and cover it up? Does he declare that it's all fake news and that, in fact, it's been an elaborate ploy to see his good name tarnished? Well, no. Here's maybe the surprise. The surprise is that now we see a man who takes ownership for his sin. He responds and he says, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. Seems that this is a, a significant moment in this man's story. A moment where he is confronted again with his own sinfulness. A moment where he takes responsibility for his sin. A moment that seems to be a catalyst for change in his life. Because Judah, whenever we meet him later in the story, he seems to be a new man. A different man. A man who has been and is being changed by God. And isn't that what we should expect? That God could change a man. That God could change a man. That God could change a woman. If he saves us, well, then will he not sanctify us? Perhaps you're here, and to be honest, 
Your story isn't that unlike Genesis 38. It's a little bit messy. It's a sort of story that you really don't want to be made public. And you wonder if, if that rules you out from being one of God's people. You wonder if the sinful mess that you've made of your life, the selfish decisions which put your own fleshly desires first and wreaked havoc in the lives of others, well, is there any way back? Is there any way back? Is it a road that now that I've started on, I just have to continue on? Or, or is there a way to turn around to get onto the narrow path? You see, there is a possibility of change. It's possible to see your sin, to say, hold on, I recognize that I am sinful, that I need a savior, that I'm gonna confess my sin, I'm gonna repent from my sin, I'm gonna turn away from my sin, I'm gonna follow after Jesus. I'm gonna seek to walk after him. That is absolutely possible tonight, no matter what your situation is. And that's one of the reasons that messy stories like this find their way into the Bible, isn't it? Because this is also a chapter that points to God's grace and his mercy. Just look at how it finishes, verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread onto his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah. I wonder if there's something about this story that sounds a little bit familiar. A woman who's struggled to get pregnant, a pregnancy that ends up with twins, a story of the birth of the twins, and the first comes out and there's something red. In this case, it's a scarlet thread. The firstborn doesn't actually end up being the one through which the blessing is passed. There is a great reversal, a, a, a flipping of the normal order. The last becoming the first, you know, that kind of thing. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember the story of Isaac and Rebecca and their twin boys, Jacob and Esau? It's got all the similarities, hasn't it? And it's almost as if the writer of Genesis is saying, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Because although much of the focus will be given to Joseph in the concluding section of Genesis, it's really a story of the generations of Jacob. That's what it says back in Genesis 37, verse 2. And ultimately, it will be Judah's line that is more important because Perez features in one very important genealogy. Here these Verses from Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And you know that the line continues to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, 
who is called the Christ. What wonder that God would associate himself with men like Judah. What wonder that God would work his sovereign hand to bring about his son from the line of this sexual scandal. What wonder that God works to bring about his promises and his purposes by showing his gracious hand at work. His judgment and wrath, yes, absolutely, but also his grace and his mercy in the transforming of sinful men. This is a passage that points us forward, isn't it? Points us forward to the Lion of Judah, to Jesus welcoming sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation into a big family of God. Jesus, not only the Lion of Judah, but also the Lamb that was slain, so that his blood would be shed on the cross to pay the price for our sin. And so tonight, do you see your sin? Do you see your sin? And what are you doing with it? Are you owning it? Are you repenting of it? Are you turning to Jesus? Are you recognizing that the only way that God will see you as, as, as righteous is if you are in Christ? If you are wearing his righteous robes? The story of Judah and Tamar may well be a story that's often skipped over, but it's a story of sinful hearts, a whole lot of sin, and the justice, and the promises, and the grace and the mercy of God. And I think it's a story that we need to hear again and again. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this story, we're reminded of our own sinfulness. We're reminded of our own sinful hearts. We're reminded that there is much that we wouldn't want to be public. But we're also reminded of your grace and your mercy. And that for those who are in Christ, you see us as righteous. Christ has paid the punishment for our sin. He has took your wrath upon himself. And so, Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. And I pray for each person here that they would be leaving, knowing that they are putting their trust in Jesus, that they would have recognized their own sinfulness, and that they would be looking to Christ as the only answer to it, that they would be trusting in Christ's righteousness, that that is what they'd be putting their trust in this evening. And so, Lord, I pray for each of us that your grace and your mercy would continue to be at work in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.